0: Thank you Gordon and Barbara for our music this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream today. We missed last week uh, due to illness and weather and various things but we're back today in Romans chapter 8 at the end of this chapter verses 37 to 39 and this is message number 10 in our study of Romans chapter 8 and our final uh, message also. This uh last section, which really goes from verse 31 to the end of the chapter that we've spent a few weeks on, is uh, one of the greatest, maybe the greatest passage in Scripture on security and assurance of our salvation. One commentator said it this way, no one has ever set them forth so compactly and so profoundly in a way that is so stimulating, effective, and uplifting, as this passage. Or I like the way our brother Don described it when he read this passage a few minutes ago. He said these are sweet and precious words, aren't they? Uh, they give us our our assurance of our salvation. Why is it, I ask you, that people don't like the doctrine of eternal security? It's amazing to me that so many people throughout history, uh, when they come to this doctrine, that once you're saved, you're always saved, that once salvation has happened to you, that somehow you can lose it. I don't understand that. It's, it's kind of like a man uh, out, in the, out in the ocean, and he's drowning, and the lifeguard sees him, so the lifeguard jumps off his platform, swims out to the man, grabs a hold of him, he's pulling him to shore, and the drowning man says, now don't hold on to me too tight, you know, I mean, that's, that's what I think sometimes, you know, God, don't hold on to me too tight here. It was Martin Luther who gave the great illustration of his security uh, when he likened uh, the church to the ship, and he was a man overboard, and the ship, the church, throws him a lifeline, and he said, security is to let go of the rope to say it's the Lord Jesus Christ who saves me, not the church, not any other human being, uh, only the Lord himself. Well, in in this age, folks, of multiculturalism, ecumenicalism, globalism, socialism, postmodernism, and all the other isms, it seems like any time somebody says confidently, I know something, they're excluded, isn't that isn't that the truth? And yet Paul says, "I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him against that day." And yet it seems like when that happens, that uh, people somehow think, "No, you can't know." In this day we have, where people say there's no absolute truth, they say that absolutely too—that there's no absolute truth. Well, you know. Uh, I rem- I, I've been reading uh, uh, lately in a couple history books, church history, Baptist history books, and you know our English and American forefathers that believed in eternal security, that believed you're saved by grace alone and not by your works, were called nonconformists. They were called dissenters. I when I go to England, we go to a graveyard called the Dissenter's Graveyard. Where great uh, men of the faith uh, like John Bunyan and and Defoe and John Gill and and Isaac Watts and others are buried there because they believe these great doctrines. So they were dissenters from the Church of England. And the Church of England wouldn't allow them to be buried in their graveyards. They had to have their own graveyard somewhere. They believed these truths. As a matter of fact, I was also reading of our actually Baptist forefathers in this country, but there were other dissenters like them, who in the 1700s, before America gained its independence from England, do you know that it was against the law in the what is now the state of Virginia to be a Baptist? It was against the law because you would teach things that the Church of England did not teach. And if you taught anything against the Church of England in Virginia— you were actually put in jail. And many of our forefathers were put in jail for preaching what I'm going to preach this morning. It's, it's interesting, one, one uh, county in Virginia was very famous for its jail, and many Baptists and other uh, dissenters were put in jail there. And so uh, these preachers Uh, would preach through the window the bars on the window on Sunday morning and their people would come and gather around outside the bars on the window so that they could preach these doctrines to them and those uh, uh, officials were so upset with that that they literally built a wall outside that came up higher than the window so the people outside could not see the preachers inside preaching from behind the bars so you know what they did on Sunday morning, the preacher would be ready. The people had a long pole with a flag on the end of it. And when everyone was gathered together, they stuck the flag up above the wall and the preacher started preaching. This is in America. This is in Virginia. This went on for a number of years in a number of states until we gained our independence. And those, ch- and those states uh, gave religious freedom to uh, these doctrines in our, in our land. Well, notice... That our two verses here this morning, which begin in verse three verses thirty-seven through thirty-nine, follow as Don said and read a few minutes ago. Verse thirty-six, which remember is a is a quotation from Psalm forty-four, verse twenty-two. For your sake we are killed all the day long; we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Well, it may be in days past; it could be in our own days. And yet, what is verse seven? 37 say, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors. All of those things, no matter what happens to us, no matter what may come our way for believing what we believe, no one can separate us from the love of God. As a matter of fact, they simply make us victors. So notice, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We were listening in our Sunday school class this morning that the word conquerors is the word overcomers there in 1 John. It comes from the the verb nikao, uh, Nikki, the goddess of victory. And actually, you have a prefix that we pronounce hyper. (laughs) We we would say it in English. We are hyper conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And so, folks, the, the Christian life is a war. It's a battle. And you either lose or conquer. You you either overcome or you don't overcome. And so remember Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. It's It's a wrestling match, and we have to put on the armor of God because of it. And notice verse 37 then says also, through him who loved us. Someone emphatically pointed out the past tense in that last word. Not is loving or will love, those things would be true also, but through Jesus Christ who loved us, past tense, and what would that refer to? It would refer to his cross. It would refer to the fact that Jesus loved us enough to die for us. And that cross that he provided for us gives us that victory that we have in him. May I go back and read Colossians uh, chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15 when, it, when Paul is describing what Jesus did for us on the cross, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. It was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, that is, in His cross. And so we are more than conquerors through His cross. We're more than conquerors because of what Jesus Christ did for us. So verse 37 kind of serves as an introduction to the message that I want to give this morning. And uh, so you notice in your outline that you have in front of you, I give you just these six uh, major points and uh, as someone pointed out, and I, I, I like to use six because it's, it's kind of like we have four pairs of things and two single things, and they kind of come uh, two pairs and then a single thing, two more pairs and a single thing. And so that's how I've kind of put the outline here, and I think you'll see why as we go through. Now, what does Paul do here? Paul comes to the end of this great chapter. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 1 through 8, I have said before, I don't think there's another piece of literature in any language anywhere that can compare to Romans 1 through 8. And he comes to the end of this great passage uh, by the inspiration of God, and he begins to look left and he looks right. He looks up and he looks down. He looks in and he looks out and he begins to say, is there anything out there that can separate you from the love of God if you are in Christ Jesus? If you have accepted Him as your Savior, can this, can that, can anything take you away from the love of God? Is there any way you could lose your salvation? And the end of it is going to be, of course not. There's nothing Uh, anywhere that has ever been made or created. And by the way, everything has been made or created except God. (laughs) And and God's not going to take you away from God. So can anything else? No, it can't. So notice with me uh, these categories or, or groupings, if you will. First of all, life and death, death and life in verse 38. Now, these two realms we know very well because we're going to experience them. We're experiencing life. We will experience death short of the rapture uh, that could come. But death he mentions first. And of course, Paul's life is full of these experiences, near-death experiences. And then finally, execution himself by those who hated him and hated his doctrine. Could that separate Paul from the love of Christ? No, it sent him on into the arms of his Savior is what it did. But I, I remember that Paul said, for example, in uh, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, are they, that is the false teachers, ministers of Christ? And he said, I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes more uh, above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. And I think he meant those near-death experiences that he often had. And he said, I affirm by my boasting in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. Think of all of the near-death experiences he had, being stoned to death, being beaten, being being shipwrecked, all of these kinds of things that that happened to him. Uh, He came to that often. Did they ever separate him from the love of God? No. And then finally, his own death? By beheading, couldn't separate him from the love of God. All of those martyrs that we have seen throughout 2,000 years and even before that who went to death for their faith, the world thinking, we'll teach them, we'll burn them by fire, we'll feed them to the lions, they thought that they had victory over those people? No, they gave those people their final reward. They sent them on to their Savior where they live to this day. In glory before the Lord. And what about life? Can anything in life separate you from the love of God? Let me go back to Paul again in 2 Corinthians 11. In verse 28, he mentions eight times the word peril, the perils that he faced in life. He says, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, and even says, in perils among false brethren. Besides the other thing, what comes upon me daily, he said, even the care of all the churches. Can any of those things in my life separate me from the love of God? And of course, he says, they cannot. As a matter of fact, it made Paul stronger. And this is the thing that the world doesn't understand, isn't it? When they think they will push us away from Christ, when they think that somehow something will make us lose our salvation, it actually makes us stronger rather than weaker. I take you back again to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12. Remember where he was taken up to the third heaven and he saw those glories of heaven? And then uh, uh, he says, so that I didn't get puffed up in my own mind and heart, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. Uh, to humble me and keep me humble. And then he prayed, Lord, take this away from me. I I don't want this thorn in the flesh. And then God said to him in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, most gladly, I will boast in my infirmities. Let them come. Let the persecutions come. Let the hatred come, whatever, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that's what's happened throughout history, folks. When uh, and read Hebrews eleven, if you want to. When the pressures of the world came upon God's people, it only made them stronger in their faith. And that's what I think Paul is saying to us in these days in which we live. No matter where the The pressure may come in your life. Uh, Don't let those things make you weaker. Let them make you stronger. Yesterday, as I was preparing this message, I walked from my office down this hallway, and I go by that board, you know, where we have pictures of those past members of our church who have gone on to be with the Lord. And And I look across that bottom row, just the last four, and I see Milburn, and I see John, and I see Joe, and I see Howard. And I think of every one of those men, as they came closer to death itself, they became stronger in their faith and gave testimony to the fact of knowing where they were going and the victory they were going to gain. That's the way we all should be. Now, secondly, the second pair of things are angels and principalities in uh, verse 38 also. Angels and principalities, we've already talked about that in Ephesians chapter 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. Those things are all around us all the time. The Spirit speaks expressly, Paul said to Timothy chapter 4, that in the latter times some would depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons. Those things are with us even today, and one of our members here this morning in the class quoted uh, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 14, no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, and therefore it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves as ministers of righteousness. That's among us still today. Can any of them separate us from the love of God? You know, we know how Satan works. Because God has given us his word. Jesus said to Peter, Satan wants to have you that he may sift you as wheat. He wants to put you in the sifter. He wants to shake it and sift and see if you're really wheat or whether you're chaff. We know that Paul said, we're not ignorant of his devices. We know what he does in our lives and in our hearts. Paul said, people are taken captive by him at his will. He wants to capture us. And, and Peter said, he's like a, a roaring lion, roaring and seeking whom he may devour. We're not ignorant of all these things. We know the principalities and powers that are out there. And you know, folks, the problem is that we, or I should say the world too, we get caught up in these things of principalities and powers. We as God's people need to be uh, cautious and aware. We we should know, of course, that these things are out there. But I think sometimes people get caught up in this world of Satanism and demonism and, and witchcraft and all of these things that go along with it for a number of reasons. No, number one, you can create a real interest in those things. You can begin to to think, I want to study those things, I want to know about them, and the next thing you know, you're engulfed with those things, you're thinking nothing of those things, and Satan uses those things. There is also a fleshly attraction to these kinds of things. Satanism and, and witchcraft, uh, demonology, and those kinds of things are lewd and and uh, wrong and, and, and uh um, fleshly before the Lord, and people that get involved in those uh, get drawn in by the lusts of the flesh into those kinds of studies. There's a modern kind of Gnosticism that I want to travel out there in the world of, of spirits and angels and demons and that kind of thing, and yet there's also that unknowing pulling that you get pulled in by a false teacher, someone who begins to teach these kinds of things. You know, some years ago now, There was a series of books by Frank Peretti called This Present Darkness followed up by Piercing the Darkness and things like that. Uh, My opinion is that I think maybe he pushed more people into uh, those kinds of things than he ever pulled out of those kinds of things because people would read those books because they thought that was so cool to be reading into those kinds of that that spirit world and that demon world and so forth and you get pulled into it. You know what Colossians 2.18 says? Colossians two eighteen, Paul said, "Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which you have not seen, vainly puffed up in your fleshly mind." And people get puffed up like that, and they and they want to study those kinds of things. When I was a teenager. The big thing was a Ouija board do you you remember that I see all the older heads going like this do they still have those things can you still buy a Ouija board I don't know but you know it it was this thing where you actually put your hands on this little triangle thing in the middle of the board and you let the spirits move your hands to get the answer on the board that you wanted it was really kind of weird well I was a I was a new kid in a new youth group as a teenager And I thought it was pretty cool to take one of those boards to a youth activity one time. (laughs) And I did. And then I kind of learned that this this isn't really as cool as I thought it was. And I remember driving home from church that night, and I would drive myself, and it was about 40 miles from my home to church. So I would drive home at night after church, and I had that Ouija board on on the seat next to me in the car, and I came to Four Mile Creek, a river that... Uh, is there in Southern Ohio. I pulled off before the bridge. I took that game. I walked out on the bridge and threw it in the river and watched it float down the river because the Lord said to me, you don't need to be doing these kinds of things. When my kids were teenagers, there was a game called Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, it was a game that would pull kids into this mystic world of demons and spirits, very much like the ancient Gnosticism. And you know, folks, you, you know I'm not a movie goer, much less a movie watcher much, but you can't help but see commercials on TV. And I see the commercials of movies that people must watch and engulf their, themselves in. I don't even like the commercials. It's ugly. It's greasy. It's, it's demonic and these monsters and everything that they create. I wonder sometimes if lost people who create those things, when they die and go to a sinner's hell, if those things won't become real in their lives because demons are real and torment them for throughout eternity. I wonder if that's not true. I wonder if it couldn't happen that way. And the video games and all that, that uh, just engulf kids, we have to be careful of these things. There are angels and principalities out there. But why do we talk about them? We do because we say to ourselves, if you are in Christ Jesus, is there any power, demonic, uh, witchcraft, sorcery, anything like that that could ever separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, nothing in all of that world can do that to you. So principalities and powers. And also then in verse 38 is the word powers, and I use it as a separate category rather than along with angels and principalities. Actually, in the Greek text, it's separated and it comes last in this verse, but I take it as a separate thing because there are lots of things in the bible that are called powers not just demonic or or, or uh, uh, satanic but government things religious things cultural things there are lots of things that that are powers and so let me read you a few of these there's political power 1 Corinthians 15:24 then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. All of the governments of this world are going to come under the rule of Christ one day. Sin is a power. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six: the sting of sin uh, or of death is sin and the strength that is the power of sin is the law. There's power in sin. By the way, this is the word dunamis. You know we get our word dynamite from it. The, the power of sin is in you and in this world. There's the power of nature, Hebrews 11:34. They quenched the power or the violence of fire, the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. There's power in the created world. There's satanic power, no doubt. The dragon gave the Antichrist his power and his throne and his great authority. There's religious power. So in Revelation 18, of that one world church that will one day uh, rule in the world, all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have uh, have have made themselves rich through the abundance of that is the power of her luxury. And so there's a power in religions. There's a power in that kind of of thing in this world. And lastly, there's a human power. Acts 3, 12, when Peter saw it, he said, you men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why do you look so earnestly on us as though by our own power, we could make this man walk? But he refers to human power, So think of all of the things that have power in this world, all of the things you might come in contact with, and there are many of them, can any of them separate you from the love of Christ? Can anything that you can think of uh, do that? Let me ask you this, what are you afraid of in this world? What is it you fear? I think some people who don't have assurance of their salvation fear themselves. Fear the power of their own sin. Well, what about that, Lord? Maybe I did that and I lost my salvation. What about my past, Lord? What about back there? Maybe I did something and I can't be saved. What about this thing that happened to me? And we think of the power of our own sin, which is powerful. Can it separate you from the love of God? No, it can't. By the way, I'm not talking first grade terminology here I'm talking adult language. I'm talking to those of you who know the Scripture and know the Lord. Christians sin, and sometimes they sin very terribly. But can those sins, if you've already been born again, separate you from the love of God? They cannot. And You need to come back to the fellowship with the Lord and gain that assurance again if you've lost it. Well, let me go on to number four, another pair of things, and now Paul, having, having looked here and looked there, it's kind of like he looks way back, and he looks here, and he looks way forward. Now he's, he's getting the whole spectrum, and he says things present and things to come. I thought to myself, why didn't he say things past? Why, why not those things back there? Well, I, I guess because the past is done, If you're in the Lord now, there's nothing in your past that can take you away from that. Some people think, well, yeah, but I did a very terrible thing in my past. I did a very wicked thing back then. If you are in Christ now, God saved you from that and in spite of that, and you can't lose it now. Well, things present, everything in this passage, everything that we've been talking about in in chapter 8 and and in this last section of chapter 8, Paul says, there's nothing here, nothing that can separate me from the love of God. And Paul experienced them all. The writer of this passage, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had experienced all of these, and he's in Christ Jesus. And what about things to come? What about about things that might come in your future? The Bible speaks sometimes of these things, John 16, 13, the Spirit, when the Spirit of truth has come, He will guide you into all truth. He will show you things to come. There's a lot of things yet to come in our future. Revelation 4.1, when John's writing Revelation, God says to him, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. A lot of things are going to take place yet in the future. Revelation 1.19, Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So there's a lot yet to go. You know, for me, folks, uh, I don't care about the future. Let me qualify that. God has told us all we need to know about the future. He has revealed it to us in his scripture. We have confidence in those things. We know those things are going to happen. I don't need to know about my life next year. I don't need to know about what God is going to, as if I could look into some kind of crystal ball and say, well, Lord, show me where I'll be two years from now. Frankly, I don't want to know. And the Lord has shown me enough to say, I know who holds the future, and I know who holds my hand, as the old song says, and I know how to walk with him, and if I do it, I'll be okay two years from now. And that's all I need to know. There's nothing in things present or things to come that can take you or separate you from the love of God. You know, there were a few people who saw the things to come. Enoch and Elijah both were taken up to heaven, and they, they didn't come back from this life. They saw things to come. Isaiah, Ezekiel, those prophets who saw heaven, they saw things to come. And then there's Peter, James, and John on the Isle uh, or on the Mount of Transfiguration. John and the Book of Revelation and and Paul himself, taken up to the third heaven. They saw things to come. All of them would tell you, there's nothing that can separate you from God. I've seen it all. I've been there, and you haven't, but they have. And they can say, You won't be separated from the love of God. Then, fifthly, height and depth. So Paul not only looks left and he looks right, he looks up and he and he looks down. And he says, is there anything up there? Remember, Paul went up to the third heaven to paradise. Second Corinthians 12, 12. I knew a man in Christ who 14 years ago, and he's going back in his own life before he started his missionary journeys, when God gave him this revelation, he says that man, and he's speaking of himself, caught up to the third heaven, how he was caught up into paradise. Now, I don't know about you. But if, I, if God took me up into heaven where I can see all the way back to creation, I can see all the way to the new heavens and the new earth, I can see the flames of hell down there and the joys of heaven up here, I'm, I'm telling you I would have confidence in, in what God does with me. And God says, now go back there and go on your missionary journeys and preach my word and trust in me. Uh, You know I'll never let go of you. He says, "I, I know whom I've believed. I'm persuaded that he's able to do this. And if you could see that, you would have the same thing in that height or depth. You would have the same confidence that he has yet. And I'll tell you what's better than that. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ himself not only came from heaven to this earth to let us know what things are in the height, but he went into death itself to let us know what's down there. And he came out of it. And he came out with victory. And he came out saying, I am the one that was dead. I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of hell and death. What do you have to be afraid of? And so he showed us all of these things. And so, folks, what what person, what, what creature, what, what doctrine, what person way up there or way down there can separate you from the love of Christ and Christ Jesus? If you have all of these testimonies of the inspired scripture that tell you things, you conclude nothing can. So what can Paul say after all of these things? Well, he can say one more thing in verse 39. And uh, he, he says it like this in the new version Uh, nor any other created thing, nor any other creature, any other creation. This word, by the way, creature, creation, whether it's translated as creature or translated as creation or created things, as as it is here, all come from exactly the same Greek word. It's just how you want to express it, how you want to translate it. It's interesting that in the book of Romans, That word, katissus, you would pronounce it, 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 uh, appears seven times. The first one was back in chapter 1, verse 20, where he says, From the creation of the world, God is clearly seen and understood. From the very beginning, from the creation of the world. But then, of the seven times this word appears in Romans, five times it appears in chapter 8. So he has expressed this to us. As a matter of fact, if you'll go back to verse 19, and let me read a few verses where you have this word. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, verse 20, for the creation was subject, uh, subjected to futility, not willingly, because of him who subjected it in hope. Verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. And then you have it lastly in our verse 39. And so is there anything in all of those places, in all of the world, anything that God created? Let me remind you again. The only thing that has not been created is God and everything else, angels, heaven, hell, the earth, the past, the future, everything is created by the one who is never created and that is by God himself. And so Paul, after looking at everything else, spreads his arm off and says, any created thing, anything anywhere, past, present, future, up, down, inside, outside, anything, Nothing separate you from the love of God we will live with him forever and he closes these eight uh, these eight chapters in that way I, I thought maybe I shouldn't tell this but I will for those of you in our church you know Phyllis and for those of you watching who don't know there's a widow lady in our church named Phyllis she wouldn't mind me using her name at all Well, Phyllis is growing weaker, and she's a widow lady, she's aged, she lives by herself, but her family and kids are around her, and we as a church are around her, and we check with her every week to see if she can come to church, and she hasn't been able to for the last few weeks, not here today. And so yesterday I was just thinking about that and, you know, we've had sickness going around and I know her kids were out of town for a few days and I thought I need to go, I need to go knock on her door, I need to go check with Phyllis. So yesterday I drove down uh, to to Gladstone and went down that little narrow street, went down to that little white small house and went up to the door and I rang the doorbell and I wait, She she isn't really good at hearing, you know. And sure enough, I could see the doorknob start to turn, and the, the door creaked open a little bit. And then she saw who it was. Well, I stepped inside the, uh, uh, the screen door because it's cold outside, and usually my conversations with Phyllis are right there on the welcome mat. We, you know, I don't go too far into her house. She's a little old lady. This, this is her uh, nest, you know. It's not made for me. It's made for her. So we stand there, and we talk at the door. And uh, it's just a sweet talk. She told me she's doing fine. She hasn't been sick. Her kids are home now. Uh, I asked her about uh, church maybe if she felt like it. I don't think so. And uh, just the typical things, just, just a sweet conversation uh, with such a dear lady. Her husband went on to be with the Lord. They are former missionaries in Japan. Both of them served after the war in Japan and uh, he's gone on to be with the Lord, and, and here she is. And uh, so I was leaving, and I stepped out, and, and I uh, uh, started to close the screen door. And, and she was closing the main door, and she opened it back up about this far. And her little face came right up, you know, to the, to the opening in the door. And I put my head down next to her, and she said, I hope I'm the next one to go. I hope I'm the next one to go. Folks, I ask you, is there any greater confidence and assurance of what we have in Christ Jesus than what I heard in those words? Is there any government anywhere that could separate that person from Christ Jesus? Is there some religion somewhere? Is there some demon somewhere that could separate that little widow lady from the faith that she has in the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope I'm the next one to go. I'm waiting for my reward. And so, folks, I'm asking you, what about you? To depart and to be with Christ, far better, Paul says. And Howard, before he died, quoted that verse and he said, far better. (laughs) Not just better, but far better. That's assurance. So do you have the assurance in in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This great chapter, chapter 8, has talked to us about regeneration, how you are saved, how you can put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It has talked to us about the life in the Spirit and how we can walk with the Spirit and be guided by Him and have a fruitful and full Christian life. And finally, it talks to us about our assurance How you can have this kind of confidence and assurance to the very moment you die and are transferred into glory. I hope that you know that. I hope that you have that kind of faith and that kind of assurance. If you don't, make that right today so that you don't waste your life in in unnecessary uh, torture to yourself, or if you're not saved, that you'll truly come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's stand, let's think about that. Let's sing a song together and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts the way He desires today. Let's stand and bow our heads in prayer. Now, Father, uh, we thank You for for these great passages of Scripture. We know, Father, that in our human, finite minds that we cannot uh, plunge the depth of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But what, what we do read and what we do know we can have confidence in. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, for the confidence of our fathers that gave us this word, that gave us our faith, that lived it out before us through these years. We thank you, Father, for those great saints that have gone on before with great confidence in you. And so, Father, we would not leave this chapter Without the self-examination, first of all, of our own salvation, do we know Christ as our Savior? Have we simply talked about it? Have we simply thought about it but never personally placed our faith in Christ? And, Father, if someone has not, who hears my voice today or the voice of, of the gospel wherever today, may they place their faith in you. And then, Father, give us the confidence, give us the assurance of our salvation, that we may know, that we may have that kind of confidence that we see in God's people. And so, Father, I pray for that. And if someone is struggling with these things, I pray that maybe these verses, these truths that we've seen today will give them that confidence and assurance that they need. So, Father, we pray that you would help us and make us think and do the way we should and help us, Father, to have that confidence that glorifies you. We'll thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Our invitation is always given as we sing here in our church. Uh, Our invitation is open. And when the service closes, our invitation is still open. So uh, you respond to this the way the Lord is leading you as Gordon comes and leads us in this song. And that's hymn 160.